You're listening to the Oanda Market Insights podcast, where we speak to Oanda senior market analysts from around the world. And today I'm pleased to welcome Craig Earlham in London and Ed Moyer in New York. Good afternoon, guys. Good afternoon. Hello there. Now, over the last three years that we've been doing these podcasts, the word unprecedented has been perhaps a rather overused expression. In the last year, we've seen the effects of the pandemic on all our lives with markets responding accordingly. We've seen the huge bailouts, mass unemployment, negative oil prices and so on. But I have to say the events over the last few days in Washington, for me, top everything. Ed, would you agree? Very much so. I think at the start of the trading week, uh, everyone was just focused on the Georgia Senate runoff races. And while that had a very uh, uh, surprise result, uh, you know, the focus has, has completely been on what happened at the Capitol with the uh, pro-Trump protesters storming the Capitol and uh, just the events that transpired after that. It, it was pretty shocking to see it happen. And for American history, it was definitely a dark day. It was also pretty shocking to see that the events that happened on the Capitol really did not have uh, much of a reaction on Wall Street. But in the end, I think that uh, everyone is is kind of still processing what is happening. And uh, I think uh, you're seeing the last remaining days of the Trump administration come to intense scrutiny. And uh, I think you're probably going to see uh, impeachment hearings again for the president. And, and uh, it's it's just going to uh, really uh, cast a, a poor shadow on, on American politics. Politics. Uh, but, uh, you know, looking forward, um, I, I think you, you have to, you know, acknowledge that uh, there was a, a big surprise um, with the Democrats uh, managing to pull off that blue wave. I think that uh, coming into the election, you know, the polls, they got it right. They um, both were predicting Raphael Warnock and John Ossoff were going to uh, have small victories, but they were anticipating that. And I think that everyone anticipated that, you know, Georgia, you know, is typically a red state until uh, November. Um, It was anticipated that the voters that flipped to uh, the Democrats uh, were going to want a controlled government and and they wanted the Republicans to maintain the Senate. And uh, that wasn't the case. And uh, I think that now you're, you're going to see that, uh, a blue wave really makes life a lot easier for the Biden administration. And that's just going to, in in the immediate future, provide um, greater optimism that he'll be able to provide more support to Americans and really fast track his COVID strategy, which will hopefully uh, deliver a better handling of the virus and uh, and vaccine rollout. So I think there's a a lot of optimism. That's why we're continuing to see U.S. stocks uh, hit record highs. And uh, I think that uh, everyone is uh, trying to, you know, separate the political chaos that is ensuing in Washington with just what exactly is going to be the um, ultimate outcome for the economy, for the, uh, the stock market and for the dollar. And Craig, as Ed said, it was a bit of a surprise for some that markets were pretty buoyant. Was that mainly because of the hopes that Joe Biden and his party will inject lots of cash into the US economy? I think there's probably a few reasons, to be honest, uh, why these markets uh, were relatively stable. Yes, uh, these were incredibly shocking scenes, as you've already mentioned, unprecedented. But at the same time, we've become extremely desensitized, uh, I feel, over the last three or four years to these kind of chaotic uh, events surrounding President Trump. And I feel like over the years, the markets have reacted less and less. And had this happened three or four years ago, I do think there would have been a much greater uh, reaction in the markets. Not an extreme reaction per se, but certainly a much greater reaction than what we've seen this time around. And maybe the fact that this is 
the end of his presidency is maybe one of the reasons why there was a little bit more calmness. Then we go to the Georgia elections and what it means. And yeah, I think the the prospect of more fiscal stimulus looks almost inevitable now. I think there's one thing that the Democrats will certainly agree on. It is the need for more stimulus. So it's just a case of how much it will be uh, and when it's going to come. So I think that's a, a bullish factor as far as these markets are concerned. Tax hikes may just be uh, a little bit harder and may take a little bit more time and may require some compromise. We've got to remember that there's a widespread of views within the uh, within the Democratic Party, as in the Republican Party. So yes, while the party does have an effective majority in the Senate with that extra uh, casting vote from Kamala Harris, they still have to have all 50 senators on board with any tax hikes that they're going to implement, uh, even if it's a pairing back of what uh, Donald Trump and the Republicans uh, cut uh, a few years ago. So this may take some time, this may take some compromise, and it may not be as severe as what it may have been had the Democrats, for example, got 55, 60 seats in the Senate. So I think maybe that's partly contributing to why we are seeing um, a more relaxed reaction to these uh, to the Georgia results. Obviously, we did see a little bit of weakness on Monday and Tuesday leading up to the uh, announcement. I think it's something we've got to watch carefully because uh, if it appears that all 50 senators are on board with reversing a certain proportion of the tax cuts which were previously initiated and, and, and to the level that Joe Biden, for example, hinted at during the debates, then you may see a very different reaction. But I, I almost feel like the markets are responding to the inevitability of a large fiscal stimulus and the potential for some kind of tax hikes that are still to an extent unknown. We'll go back to the USA in a moment or two, guys, and talk about the latest jobs figures for the US economy. But I wanted to ask you, Craig, very easy to see events overshadowed by what happened in Washington uh, this week. But it's been a tumultuous week for the UK as well. On Monday, of course, it was the first business day in this new era of Brexit. And the vaccine and the AstraZeneca vaccine, which is now available. And um, I've seen a stat today. I don't know whether it's completely correct, but apparently we've vaccinated more people in the UK than Europe as an entire continent. Got to say, that is quite impressive. I think that stat actually came from Boris Johnson himself in yesterday's briefing, if I'm not mistaken. He did refer to that point. Uh, interesting that um, obviously the Prime Minister doesn't mind comparisons with the rest of Europe when they're favourable. Um, Got to be careful but, uh, though, hasn't he? Because he doesn't want to gloat. Uh, yeah, I mean, exactly. But I think, like say, uh, I think a comparison when they're favourable is something that um, he's clearly quite comfortable with. It's inevitable as well because the, the EU took longer to approve the Pfizer vaccine. They only uh, approved it late uh, late on in December, whereas we were, the UK was the first to uh, approve the vaccine and therefore the first to roll it out. And obviously we've seen the same now with AstraZeneca as well. Do you think that illustrates whichever side of the Brexit debate you're on, but there are some advantages advantages to being an independent nation when you can make those decisions. The UK could have made that decision if it wanted as part of the EU. I, I imagine there would have been pressure to approve it as a whole, but there was nothing actually... Uh, Isn't that the mistaken. point though? Isn't that what Angela Merkel did with Germany? She held back. Um, they're starting to catch up uh, the Germans as far as the vaccinations are concerned, but the French are miles behind. I think it, it is an interesting point, but again, it's worth stressing just that it wouldn't have stopped the UK from doing so. It would have just been discouraged from doing so. But I guess pressure is pressure regardless. So the UK, yeah, that that is the stat that Boris Johnson did refer to. 
And I think the next month or so is going to be absolutely critical because there's a lot of vulnerable people that need to be vaccinated. We are dealing with a quite horrific wave now of uh, COVID because of the new uh, variant uh, and the impact that that's having on the numbers. London Mayor Sadiq Khan, even today, uh, has declared London as a major incident because the number of hospitalizations now in the capital is uh, 35% above the peak from April. So already we're at a quite catastrophic point and the, the cases are only rising. So the next two weeks is going to be severe uh, as far as the UK is concerned. So the vaccine rollout, yes, it gives us optimism from Q2 onwards, but that means that the next two months, I think, is going to be extremely, extremely challenging. And as I said, the first week of the UK economy post-Brexit and things have run fairly smoothly, no big shocks. It's not the cliff edge that some had predicted over the last few years. I mean, the fact that we got a deal, I think, is a massive thing that's uh, alleviated some of the uh, a lot of the pressures that would have uh, materialised at the turn of the year. And I think we're probably over the coming weeks going to find out a lot more about the difficulties that have that have come with uh, leaving the EU. Uh, I think the next three months is going to be critical for the financial services sector because that is not part of any uh, any deal that was reached at the end of December. That's something that's very much ongoing. The UK looking to secure equivalents in order to be able to uh, effectively sell to the EU. So I think that's there's a critical few months ahead as far as what is an extremely important industry for the UK in doing it in its future relations uh, with the EU. So we've seen the stories early this week uh, with regards to certain aspects being effectively transferred to the EU and trading being much lighter uh, as a result. We will find out just what kind of a relationship that is going to become. And I think it's just going to take time to find out what the actual impact has been. I think we can all say, thankfully, we haven't had the disruption so far, it seems, uh, that it could have brought and that the deal probably stop that from being overly disruptive but it is just going to be something we're now just going to have to judge uh, as time goes by uh, to see just how disruptive that has been because um, like I say it's been a it's been a quite strange start to the year and there hasn't really been an enormous amount of talk of Brexit because of other issues. I wanted to ask you about the oil price Craig we'll bring Ed in in a moment or two big cuts from the Saudis despite some other countries increasing their production. Basically, the, the group had agreed to meet every month from the turn of the year in order to manage any changes which are going to be necessary because of the second wave that was already uh, underway in December uh, as part of any agreement when they did uh, pair back their production increases, their planned production increases, uh, which were initially uh, slated to begin uh, in January. It was 2 million barrels initially and then fell to 500,000 and they were planning to meet every month to discuss effectively future quotas. And the, the second wave had become so severe and lockdowns had been implemented that there was difference of, of opinions, I, I guess, between the, particularly the two um, major producers, Saudi Arabia and Russia. Saudi Arabia wanting to continue to support price, seemingly favouring just extending uh, as per the status quo uh, from February to March. Russia worried about the impact that, that was going to have on its market share, wanting to protect that. The way they got around this, it seemed that there may be some form of compromise or that maybe Saudi Arabia will get its way on this occasion. But it seems that the compromise that was found was seemingly uh, includes a big sacrifice as far as Saudi Arabia is concerned. Russia and Kazakhstan were allowed to increase their production by a combined 75,000 barrels a day. And Saudi Arabia, surprisingly, cut its production by a million barrels a day. So the group 
massively over-delivered uh, as a whole compared to what the market was expecting. I think the base case for the market was that there'd be an extension, maybe a little bit of disappointment. But the fact that there was this, uh, that they over-delivered to the extent they did, uh, meant that the, the oil prices kind of got renewed vigor. WTI crude was approaching $50 a barrel at this time and it was really losing momentum and it looked as though that was going to kind of be a bit of a ceiling uh, at that point once the extension was confirmed. But the fact that they went over and above meant that so did crude and WTI above $51 a barrel now and it seems to have found some new momentum so maybe $50 can become a bit of a floor as far as these prices are concerned give or take and OPEC plus as a group has reaffirmed its position as being um, very reactive and responsive to the current situation and together even if that means one making sacrifices in favour of the other because of the differences that they hold in terms of what their priorities are. I also think we have to uh, acknowledge Saudi Arabia. What they did was pretty much remove all the short-term risk away for crude prices. I, I think that uh, the virus situation is, is deteriorating, not just in the US, Europe, but also we're seeing um, some uh, red flags in Asia. And uh, the million barrel per day cut was really quite the surprise. And, and I think that this is going to be positively received for quite some time unless we start to see uh, this give the, the green light to U.S. shale producers. I think that's the one big risk. Remember, that these production cuts, you know, they can uh, easily go away if they're uh, the, the Saudis, the Russians, if OPEC is going to lose market share to the U.S. producers. So I think that um, right now, Craig was you know spot on with highlighting that $50 level as, as a good base for oil prices. And uh, I think as vaccine rollouts become uh, more effective, and uh, I think as, as, as we, we start to see the holiday surge, you know, be the final peak of the virus, uh, hopefully, uh, I think you're going to start to see that uh, it's hard not to like oil prices. And I think that's why you're probably going to see many investors uh, not just look to oil prices, but also to the energy companies as well. So let's turn to the US economy again, Ed, and we've just had the non-farm payroll figures out. The US economy lost jobs last month for the first time since April as uh, rising coronavirus cases took its toll, uh, employers shedding 140,000 positions. So the jobless rate more or less unchanged at 6.7%. Your reaction to that? There was uh, not much of a reaction. The majority, actually, uh, over almost half a million jobs were lost in hospitality and leisure, and you know that was somewhat to be expected because of all the restrictive measures and lockdowns that took place in December. Uh, but when you take a look at the the headline loss, 140,000 jobs, that was very you know significant. I, I think that uh, it was still within the consensus range of uh, economists. And uh, when you take into consideration that the prior two months had a positive revision of 135,000, uh, it really, um, I, I think, uh, supported the muted reaction. And I think that right now we're going to see Wall Street kind of have a, a different reaction to uh, worse than expected economic data from the U.S. I, I think right now no one is doubting that the Biden administration is going to become extremely aggressive in providing more support for the economy. And with the Democrats now being able to uh, control both chambers, uh, you're going to see that worse than expected data is really just going to possibly uh, incrementally increase the expectations for more fiscal support. Uh, so, so I think the job losses are expected to really hit the bottom at by the end of the winter surge, and then I think um, ultimately as the economy reopens, hopefully as, as uh, vaccines um, start to provide large pockets of, uh, of 
optimism that uh, restrictive measures can be eased, you're going to see hiring um, um, strongly improve in the second half of the year. So I think right now you're you're probably going to see that uh, um, we're going to have more support uh, getting pumped into this economy. And, and uh, I, I think that uh, in conjunction with the a Fed that is not going to be doing any changes to policy anytime soon on interest rates or on uh, bond purchases, uh, I think you're, you're going to still have uh, investors remain fairly aggressive in, in um, maintaining uh, U.S. equity positions. They might adjust their exposure to big tech and maybe go back or a little bit more heavily into small caps. Uh, but that's kind of where we are right now. We're almost out of time, Craig, but I have to ask you about one of your favourite subjects. You know what's coming, don't you? Bitcoin. It's extraordinary watching the price go up and up and up after some dark days for Bitcoin speculators. This is incredible. What are the latest numbers? Yeah, I mean, I think I think you've summed it up quite nicely there just by, with the word speculation. Um, so Bitcoin, last time I checked, was $41,000, but that in my defense was about 15 minutes ago so it could be closer to 45 by now it's unbelievable the the way in which it is moving but then this is bitcoin this is what bitcoin does um it, it does move at this ridiculous pace once the euphoria does catch up and the euphoria well and truly has caught up uh, i remember saying when it was closing in on twenty thousand dollars it was extraordinary that it had got to that point but it didn't really feel like we were near the peak of the rally. It didn't really feel like we were hit at peak euphoria. And even, so even if it broke $20,000, I was very much in the opinion and I thought that rally would accelerate uh, rather than decelerate. And we're looking at the price now. And that was only three weeks ago that it was at 20000 So it's doubled again from a record high in in the space of only three weeks this is now we're talking about the 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 kind of speculation that we do only see in things like bitcoin i i would not be surprised if it hits fifty thousand by early next week um i wouldn't be surprised if it's well i mean when do you stop naming levels what kind of levels do we need to talk about before this starts to get more ridiculous than it already is the challenge is it's not really making any more of a case for this being um, kind of a respectable tradable instrument when it moves with this level of volatility and on on this kind of scale seemingly on the back of absolutely uh, nothing and therefore the fear that I have which is similar to the fear I had three four years ago is that while this is exciting to watch and I'm sure there's plenty of people making a a lot of money on the back of such an incredible move uh, in such a short space of time the the bill's going to come due uh, and it's going to be there is going to be a painful crash and I'm not going to sit here and try and predict throw a dart at the dartboard blind and try and predict when that's going to happen but the faster that this accelerates the more the more uh, seeing ten thousand dollars added in four days it does just feel like the, the, the fall is going to be extremely painful. I'd be extremely surprised if this doesn't crash again in the similar way that it did back in 2017 because of the way, the way in which it's now moving once again. This is an instrument that was $3,000 in March, uh, and we're now in January, 10 months on, uh, and it's $41,000, maybe even higher. It's one of those situations where you don't want to just be pessimistic about a new technology, or you don't want to be pessimistic about a new instrument just for the sake of it. But when when it's moving in the way that it's moving, it doesn't really help the case. Uh, and I'm sure there's a lot of giddy people out there who are making money as a result of this. And I only hope that uh, people don't lose a lot of money when the crash does come. But I, I, 
every uh, with every passing week, I'm increasingly confident that crash is going to come. Like I said, I'm not going to predict when it's going to happen or what level because you are again just um, just throwing a dart at a dartboard blinds. It could come at fifty thousand dollars in crash to ten thousand dollars. It could come a hundred thousand dollars in crash to twenty thousand dollars. Who knows? Uh, it doesn't really matter. The the point is that it's going to be painful. I think when it does, um, and they, like I say, much the same way that it was for anyone who didn't get in extremely early uh, three four years ago. Ed and Craig, thanks very much for joining us today. This has been the Oanda Market Insights podcast. Have a very good weekend. We're back on Monday.